You're listening to the weekly Parsha podcast recorded with Hashem's great help right here in Ramat Pichemesh Israel, 5769, 2008. This week we have no Parsha to read. This week's Parsha is non-existent. Instead we have a special reading for Sukkot. So we're going to speak a little bit about the reading of Sukkot. We're going to speak a little bit about Sukkot. We're going to teach a very fundamental idea behind Sukkot that we can take with us for the whole year round. Now, if we look at the Torah reading for Sukkot, it's very interesting for Shabbos Cholamoid, for the Shabbos of the intermediate days of Sukkot. So if you read through the entire story, so basically what happens in the story is, Tamush Rabbeinu, Moses, is on Har Sinai, he's on Mount Sinai, he's speaking to God, and he says to God, please show me your honor, and please show me the highest revelation that I can possibly experience. And God says to him, you can't possibly experience the highest revelation, because if somebody experiences that while he's still in his, his body, so he will certainly die. So instead he shows him his back, so to speak, God shows him, of course this doesn't mean literally that God showed him his back, but we're talking about here some kind of metaphor, and the Parsha that we're reading continues, and it also speaks about some other ideas. We have that God writes the second Luchos, the second tablets. We also find in this Parsha that Hashem teaches Moshe, Moses, the 13 attributes that we say on Yom Kippur, Hashem Hashem Kelrachum Vechanon, the 13 attributes of mercy. And Moshe Rabbeinu, he asks God to forgive the Jewish people for their sin that they had done with the calf, with the golden calf. And then after that, so the, the verses describe how the people of Israel are going into the land of Israel and they have to kick out all of the nations so that the nations shouldn't have any kind of bad effect upon the Jewish people. And then at the very end of the parsha, so we finally get to some holidays. But most interestingly, we speak about Pesach and we speak about Shavuos, but it doesn't seem to make any mention of Sukkot. So the question, the obvious question here, is throughout this parsha that we're reading, on Cholamoid of Sukkot, we don't say anything about Sukkot. What's the understanding of that? Why is it so? Now I'd like to point out that at the end of the parsha, we do have twice mention of the fact that three times a year we're supposed to come to God, to come in front of God at the temple. There is mention of that, but it never says the word Sukkot explicitly. It does talk about Chagamatos, which is Pesach, and it does speak specifically about Shavuos. But again, like we said, it doesn't speak specifically and explicitly about Sukkot. So the question is, why is that what we're mentioning over here? Why is this the reading of Sukkot? So now, this question becomes compounded and slightly more difficult to understand when we take a look at what the Haftarah is. The Haftarah, whenever we have this added section that we read from the Nevim, from the Prophets, there's always supposed to be something that reminds us or that hints to what's going on during that day, what the Parsha was. And now if we read the Haftarah, so what the Haftarah is talking about, which is also interestingly uh, a theme that we had already that we read about on the first day of Sukkot, on the first Yom Tiv, but what we have is the theme of the war of Gogu Mogu, the final war that occurs in the world before the final redemption, before the Jewish people are finally brought back, all of the Jewish people back to Israel, and the and God becomes one, so to speak, over the entire world, and all of the world knows God. So there's a great war, it's called the war of Gogu Magog, and that's what this Haftarah describes, how Gog and all of his mighty army, they come to the land of Israel, and, they, and they're fighting some kind of war. It's very unclear exactly what's going on, but in any event, the war ends with Gog passing away, with Gog dying and being buried in Israel. You have this whole thing, this whole story, and a similar description, not precisely the same, but you also had on the first day in the Haftarah, which spoke about this final war, this Gogu-Mogu war, 
what the question again here is what is the connection between this final war this war that happens before the final redemption before God finally reveals his himself to the entire world what is the connection between that and Sukkos that's the second question now the third question I'd like to pose is something that actually I noticed in the Haftarah uh, on the first day of Sukkot. So we read about how the whole story, the whole events occur before the final war, and then the final war occurs, and then Hashem becomes one, His name is one, everyone knows about God. And then there's a very interesting ending that seems to make a connection between Sukkot and that Haftarah and that whole concept, because it speaks about the concept that when Mashiach comes, after the Messiah has come, so the nations of the world, all the, the non-Jews, they're going to also know about God, of course. Everyone's going to know about God from the greatest of them to the least of them. And what's going to happen is every single year on Sukkos, there's going to be a pilgrimage. People are going to come to Jerusalem. They're going to come up to the house of God, to the temple. And they're going to pay homage to God. And the interesting thing that the verses say is that there'll be people, there'll be nations of the world who will not come on Sukkot to pay homage to God. And as a result of that, they will not receive the proper rain in its right time, all of those nations who don't come. So that's the first place where we see that there's a connection between Sukkot, between the concept of keeping Sukkot, of coming up on Sukkot to the temple, and the nations of the world. That's the first place where we see another place that we see it is that there's a medrash that after Mashiach comes, after the Messiah comes, so the nations of the world, they complain to God, they say, you know, you've given all of these mitzvahs, all the different commandments to the Jewish people. We also want something special. We want to also have a special commandment that we can fulfill. And God says, okay, and He gives them a mitzvah. What's the mitzvah that He gives them? He gives them the mitzvah of sukkah. And what happens in the end of the medrash is that God takes out the sun, so to speak, and it gets very hot inside of the sukkah and the non-Jews, so they have to go out. I mean, the halacha is, the law is that, you know, you don't have to sit inside of a sukkah if it's uncomfortable in there. So the as the non-Jews are going out, so for some reason, they kick the sukkah. And as they're walking out of the sukkah and they're leaving, so I don't know if it's at that moment or later on, so God says to them, you, you didn't keep the mitzvah properly. And the Mephorshim explained that, the commentators explained that the problem was not that they didn't stay in the sukkah because they didn't have to, but the problem was that they didn't treat it with the proper respect. In any event, the, th- the, the thing that I'd like to focus on here is not the, the lack in their mitzvah, but why was it that the mitzvah that God gave them was this mitzvah of sukkah? What's the understanding? Why is, what's the connection between sukkah and the non-Jew? Why is that the mitzvah, if of all the 613 mitzvahs, of all the commandments that the Jews have, so when the non-Jew asks for a mitzvah after Mashiach comes, why is it that the mitzvah that God gives them is this mitzvah of sukkah? So to begin to answer these questions, we need to have a fundamental understanding of what is Sukkot, what is the holiday of Sukkot, what's at its essence, but even more than that, what is the month of Tishrei? And this is something we've discussed previously, but I'm going to bring it to a different level and teach a different depth than previously taught. So we have the month of Tishrei and we have the month of Pesach, which is in Nisan. So what is the difference between these two months? So to try to get an understanding of it, let's look at a Gemara. There's a Gemara in Rosh Hashanah Dafir Aleph. And that Gemara we have a machlokes, we have an argument between Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Hoshua about a number of different things, whether they occurred in Nisan or they occurred in Tishrei. It speaks about when were the Avos, when were the forefathers born, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when were they born? Were they born in, actually, Abraham and, and Jacob? When were they born? Were they born in Nisan? Were they born in Tishrei? 
when was the creation of the world? Did it occur in Tishrei? Did it occur in Nisan? And interestingly, they also argue about when will the final redemption be? Will it be in Tishrei? Will it be in Nisan? Will it be in the month that we have Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot? Will the final redemption be in the month of Nisan when we have the redemption that we originally had in Mitzrayim, in Egypt? So that redemption, everyone agrees, occurred in Nisan. That's what we celebrate with Passover, with Pesach. We, we celebrate the redemption. Now the question is, the final redemption, will that also occur in Pesach? Or will that occur in Tishrei? Now, there are some points where they do agree. The thing that everyone agrees on, first, as we said, is that the redemption from Egypt occurred in Nisan. But another important point, and this will give us a hint as to exactly what the essence of Tishrei and the essence of Nisan is. So this point is that everyone agrees that in Tishrei, in the month of Rosh Hashanah, in the month that we're in right now, in the month of Sukkot, so, Batla in Egypt, so the end of the Shibud, the end of the difficult manual labor, it occurred in Tishrei, such that for six months from the time, from Tishrei until Pesach, till they went out, they were not working anymore under the conditions of difficult slave labor for the Egyptians. Another important thing that's not explicitly in the Gemara, but that coincides with this, is that when did this Shibut stop? When did the enslavement end? It ended as soon as God started to show these signs, the ten makos, the ten plagues, as soon as they began. That is when the Shibut, the enslavement ended. Now, if we look at the fundamental, the underlying concepts behind Tishrei, the underlying concepts behind Nisan, what we'll discover, and you'll see this plays out in almost every area, is that Tishrei represents the time when God is the king over the entire universe. This is something that's reflected in Rosh Hashanah, where we make God, we say He is the King. The whole idea of Rosh Hashanah is Malchus, making God our King, making God the King over the entire world. Be King over the entire world in your great honor. Right? That's something that's a concept that we have in Rosh Hashanah. It's a theme that we also have in Yom Kippur. And this theme is also alluded to in the fact that the plagues began in Tishrei. These plagues began then, why? Because God was showing His absolute mastery over the powers of nature. Here He was showing, Egyptians, you people believe that you have power over nature through your magic and through all your different spells. So God shows, I'm the one in charge. And He starts, He begins with these plagues. And the direct result of that is that no longer can the Jews be enslaved to the Egyptians because ultimately God is the king and therefore the Jews are no longer enslaved to the Egyptians but rather at that point they become they have a new king their king is named God that's what Tishri represents it's the, it's the time when we have a special relationship between God and the entire world and that relationship is reflected in all of the different concepts that come into play in Tishrei now when we look at Nisan what is Nisan? The time of the redemption of the people of Israel. It's a time when there's a special relationship between God and the Jewish people. That's what begins in Nisan. That's the special time of Nisan. And that's the time of redemption. That's the time when the Jews are taken out of Egypt in order to be made into a nation special unto God. They become completely removed from their Egyptian bondage. True, it was already six months since they were serving the Egyptians, but they were still stuck there. They still couldn't get out of Egypt. Only six months later in Nisan, when God God chose to show that not only is he king over the entire world, but he has a specific and special relationship with the Jewish people. That's what Nisan represents.
Now, taking this concept a step further, we usually think of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as these days of judgment, as these solemn, holy days, totally separate, nothing to do with sukkah. Sukkah is a time of tremendous joy, tremendous happiness. We have the sukkah, we have the mitzvahs of lulav. We have, there's so much excitement. We have simchas beis Shoeva. We have this joy of the water drawing. And there's so much, so many different things happening in sukkah. We don't realize, but sukkah is actually a continuation, an outcrop, a direct outcrop of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we declare that God is the king over the entire world. The continuation of that is a tremendous joy because once we realize that God is in charge of the entire world, is in charge of all of the forces of nature, there is nothing that's left to chance. Everything that happens in the world is a direct result of his hashkacha pratis, of his divine providence. There's no greater joy than that recognition and that is the joy of sukkahs. And that joy is reflected in the fact that we sit inside of a sukkah. What does the sukkah remind us of? So the sukkah, so the the verses tell us, All of your generations have to know that I sat you in Sukkos back in the time when you were in the wilderness. Now, what were those Sukkos? Those Sukkos are actually referenced to the Anani Hakavu, the clouds of glory that God placed upon the people of Israel and protected the Jewish people with throughout their time in the wilderness. Their clothes, they didn't wear out. They were never, there was never a time that they, had, they lacked for anything. Everything was perfect for them because of those Ananei HaKavod. Now those Ananei HaKavod represent the Divine Presence, the Shekhinah. When the Shekhinah is there, everything is perfect. You see, you see that God is there with you. Everything is, is unbelievable. Everything is perfect. There's never a complaint. That's what Ananei HaKavod is. That's what they represent. And that's what we remind ourselves on Sukkot. We enter into the Sukkah. The Sukkah reminds us of the concept that God is constantly taking care of us. He's constantly taking care of all of our needs. Anything that we need is coming from God directly. And that too is a continuous continuation of the concept that God is the king over the entire world. God is the king. We made him king on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And we continue to rejoice in that kingship. We, we rejoice in the fact that he's the king over the entire world. And we are his subjects, joyously doing his will. Now let's take a step back and look back at some of the questions that we asked and see if we can answer them with the concept that we've now set forth. One of the questions that we asked is what does the whole war of Gogumago, this tremendous, difficult war that occurs before Mashiach's time, leading into the times of Mashiach, why is that so important? Why is that something that we're reading on Sukkot? And I think by now it's clear that the whole concept of Sukkot is reminding us that God ultimately is our king. And there's a tremendous joy that occurs when we have that recognition. And that is something that it needs to be prefaced by this war of Gogu Magog, because through that war of Gogu Magog, that difficult war, so that's when it's going to become apparent that God is the one who is completely in charge of the entire world. And that theme runs through the Haftarah, and it's clear that God is going to show His hand to everyone, and it will be clear to the entire world that He is the only king, and that only to Him is it appropriate for us to bow down and to serve, and ultimately everything that we have comes from Him. That's something that will be a realization that we'll all have, hopefully soon in our days, when Mashiach comes, when the Messiah comes. Another question that we asked is, why is it that God gives a special mitzvah? The special commandment that God gives to the non-Jew is the mitzvah of Sukkot. Why is Sukkot a time that the non-Jew comes up to the temple in Jerusalem and shows his dedication to God? And if a person doesn't do that, if the non-Jew didn't do that, so he would miss out on having the rain, the rain wouldn't fall properly in its time in, his, in, in that land. And the answer is, like we've been explaining, because when Mashiach comes, it will become clear to the entire world, that there's only one God, and He is the Melech, He is the King over the entire creation. So the way that we express that, the way that we recognize that, is by the Sukkah, because the Sukkah reminds us of the Anani HaKavod, it reminds us of the fact
fact that God is intimately and directly involved in our lives. It's not just it's not just something that's outside. It's not just the stars are controlling the world or whatever other beings are controlling the world. Rather, God is directly involved in our lives, and that's expressed by the sukkah. And that's something that the realization will be there even for the non-Jew. And it's something that, despite the fact that perhaps it will be clear, umala ars deas Hashem, the entire world will be filled with knowledge of God. But it doesn't mean that people won't still need to work on themselves and work on internalizing that knowledge, work on bringing it to the fore, bringing it into their actions, bringing it to all of the way that they view the entire world and the way the, the world runs. Now, the third question that we asked is, what does the whole parsha, the whole parsha that we read, doesn't seem to say anything, indicate anything that has to do with Sukkot. But nevertheless, what you see, the theme that runs through the entire parsha, we see that Hashem is speaking to Moshe Rabbeinu, and, and Moshe Rabbeinu is asking, Harini show me your honor, show me your essence. And God says to him, you can't see my essence. But basically what we see at the, at the core of what's going on in the parsha is, that Moshe Rabbeinu, that Moses is trying to access that highest level, that level where one sees that God is the king over the entire universe. It's not something that we can see in this world, in this existence as we have it right now. We don't see that. We don't see that God is the, the ultimate king and that he's in charge of all the forces of nature. But rather it seems that they run on their own, independently, heaven forbid. But that's how it seems. And Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses was asking to see, to be able to see clearly. And God said, at this point, the way the world is right now, you can't see that. And if we examine further the Parsha, so we run out of time here, but you'll be able to see that this theme also runs through the Parsha. I want to bless me and you and all of us that we should marry, we should be Zoha, to see the kingship, the ultimate kingship of God. We should rejoice in that kingship. We take this opportunity for, of Sukkot. We should be able to take the opportunity to rejoice with God and with the recognition that He's in, in deeply and intimately involved in our lives. Thank you so much for listening. Have a very good Shabbos.